0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We've got some fantastic articles to talk about today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Weisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. All right, our first link comes to us from CNN. And it's called How a Brand of Chalk Achieved Cult Status Among Mathematicians. Ah, mathematicians Mm. known Mm. for their cult affinities.
1: (laughs) I mean, you know, there's some
2: of the few professors, I think, that not only still use chalk, but have like a real devotion to it. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to this particular chalk, some call it the Rolls Royce of chalk or the (laughs) Steinway of writing utensils. Others say that it's absolutely unbreakable, and some say it leaves absolutely no dust behind hmm, but what? it turned some of the world's brightest minds into hoarders ha! going to great length uh. for just a few sticks of the stuff <laughs> Max Lieblick, a mathematics professor at the University of Washington, said, I didn't want to become a chalk dealer, but I did like the (laughs) idea that I could be, you know, the first stick is free chalk dealer on the block in my department. Wow. This is some potent stuff. So how did this particular brand of chalk develop a cult-like following? Well, Hagoromo is the manufacturer and it's known as the full-touch chalk. Dave Bayer, a mathematics professor at Barnard in New York City, was quoted as saying, it'd be like Picasso using sharpies on a piece of waxed paper instead of using an actual canvas and oil paints just in terms of like what it's like to use other non-hagaromo full touch right that trash Exactly. Yeah, that that (laughs) plebeian stuff. Lieblik says it doesn't break as easily. The way it writes just feels right. And Bayer said, it's like skiing fresh powder. I mean, the metaphors they use to kind of elevate this have me super curious. Like, I want to get on a blackboard and kind of doodle with some of this stuff. Even David Eisenbud, a mathematics professor at the University of California at Berkeley says, The legend around this chalk is that it's impossible to write a false theorem using the chalk, (laughs) but he's quick to note, I think I've disproved that many times. (laughs) So the story of this chalk, Hagoromo Stationery is the name of the company, and they first began manufacturing chalk in Japan back in 1932, but it really wasn't until the last few decades that American mathematicians fell in love with it. One of them discovered it when he went to the University of Tokyo years ago, and one of the professors said, you know, we actually have better chalk than you do in the States. (laughs) I said, oh, go on, chalk is chalk, and I was surprised to find that he was right. But because the brand did not import into the United States, mathematicians started ordering boxes online or through designated chalk dealers who began making (laughs) businesses by supplying the chalk to professors in particular. So when it comes to the secret sauce, the formula is still a mystery, but everyone has their own hypothesis. Lieblik assumes the special ingredient is angel tears. (laughs) Uh, Someone else may have hypothesized that it's got clamshells in its composition, Hmm. but it's still a mystery. It's a proprietary secret. And... A lot of college administrators are starting to move away from blackboards, right? They prefer whiteboards or newer technology like these smart boards. And so as the demand for blackboards came down, so did the demand for chalk. One guy said, it's pretty much just six-year-old children and mathematicians. Uh, we're the only last ones left using chalk. Yeah, right? I was gonna say <laughs> my kids my
0: kids' entire school have switched to smart boards, like you said. I think they call them Promethean boards or something,
2: but it's hundred mm-hmm. percent
0: digital. They don't have blackboards at all.
2: Exactly. And so if you are using chalk as a kid, it's probably out on the sidewalk making hopscotch grids yeah. or whatever else it is. But when Hagaromo basically announced it was going out of business in 2014, it caused huge ripples in the math community. One guy referred to it as a chalk apocalypse, which felt like a real oversight in that he could have called it a chalkpocalypse, yeah. but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and so what happened is mathematicians across America did a very American thing and began stockpiling. In true mathematician fashion, one guy calculated how many boxes he would need to last 10 to 15 years Uh and bought that many boxes. One guy took a step (laughs) further and single-handedly bought the entire Amazon supply in the middle of the night. Wow. Yeah, and you know, it's not the most expensive stuff, but it's certainly not cheap. So at regular market price, a box of 72 sticks of Hagaromo Full Touch go for about $17 U.S. But during the rush, some dealers were raising the price to nearly $25 a box, and production ended on March 31st, 2015. Oh! But we got a happy story here. While American mathematicians were being American and were hoarding all of this chalk, on the other side of the world, a teacher in Korea took a different approach. Shin Hyung-suk was like, wait a minute, what if I just bring the technology to Korea and we just continue making Hagoromo chalk? I'll do it. We got to keep having this chalk. And the president really tried to stop him. He said, listen, you're a teacher with no experience in manufacturing. This is not a decision to make lightly to just set up a manufacturing business here. But the Korean teacher won him over by saying... I believe Hagoromo is the best chalk in the world. And yes, there are products that are bound to disappear as times change, but the best quality product should be the last to disappear. <laughs> So with that, the Korean teacher, Shin, he set out to transfer 16 shipping containers worth of machinery from Japan to Korea. He invested all of his savings into learning, replicating, and perfecting the hagaroma process, all in the name of this amazing, angelic chalk. And then when Watanabe even visited the factory while he was still in a wheelchair to inspect the new quality, it was perfect. Time and investment paid off. It was exactly the same. And thanks to this one Korean teacher, hagaromo continues to be produced today. And, you know, of course, it's better for the community, for the fraction of the community that loves this chalk, for this chalk to be produced. And, you know, one guy notes, there's incredible value to this, but the value is in using it up, not hoarding it. Mm -hmm. They end on this quote, there's a saying that there are teachers who have never used hagaromo full-touch chalk but there are no teachers who have only used it once.
1: Oh, wow.
2: Yeah, I'm curious about, I I don't even have a chalkboard in here, but I'm like, maybe I should get one just to experience.
1: Uh, I'm actually looking at the Hagoromo full-touch color chalk, one box full of 72 pieces on Amazon, and it is right now $50, including... (gasps) Yeah, uh, $10 well, shipping fee. So and there's he only up one the seller.
2: Uh-huh. Well, yeah. and, and you're talking about colored chalk here. So see if you can find the white chalk. The white oh, chalk this is as- the white chalk. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I hold out hope. I believe in this Korean teacher. Hey, I believe the story has a happy ending. I feel like it does have a happy ending. If he
0: saved the business and is able to raise the prices in order to keep himself going, more power to him. There we go. A spiritual experience in the form of chalk is probably worth $50 for. (laughs) 17 stick. I don't
2: know. Mm -hmm. It might be. Exactly right. Maybe this is part of a plan. (laughs) Good
1: for
2: him. Next link. Next Next link. link.
1: This article comes to us from Discover Magazine, and it is called, This Equation Calculates the Chance We Live in a Computer Simulation.
0: Aww. Oh, are the chances yeah. good? Is that the... <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: they're pretty good, which, you know, I I don't know how to feel about that right now, to be quite honest. Right.
2: Well, first of all, how do we define computer simulation? Because I think with all of the, like, bots and weaponized content. There may be a way to like semantically slice and dice this to say, yes, in fact, this is a bit of a simulation in which we don't have as much free will and independent thought as we thought we did. Right.
0: It's a simulation we made instead of some all-knowing computer programmer. Yeah,
1: yeah. They point out the simulation as being kind of your classic Matrix-style simulation where everything is just, you know, in our brains and, and whatever, but they don't really go into the details of the extent of that simulation, but, you know, they're mathematicians, maybe using <laughs> Hagaromochak, who knows, and so they're kind of going at it at their very theoretical, probability-based way. Mm-hmm. So there's this other calculation called the Drake equation, which calculates the likelihood that we're not alone in the universe by estimating the number of other intelligent civilizations that might exist in our galaxy now. Mm-hmm. So some of these terms are well-known or becoming better understood, like the number of stars in our galaxy and the proportion of stars that that have planets in their habitable zones. But others are still unknown, like the proportion of planets that develop intelligent life, and some may never be known, such as the proportion that destroy themselves before they can be found. But the Drake Equation is important because it still allows scientists to place bounds on the numbers of intelligent civilizations that might be out there. And there's another sense in which humanity could be linked with an alien intelligence, which is being inside a massively powerful supercomputer run by such a species. So enter Alexander Bebeau-Delisle and Gilles Brassard at the University of Montreal in Canada. These two researchers have derived a Drake-like equation whose results throw up some counterintuitive ideas that are likely to change the way we think about simulations and how we might determine whether we are in one and whether we could ever escape. <laughs> so the place that they start with is with a fundamental estimate of the computing power available to create a simulation. They say, for example, that a kilogram of matter Quote, fully exploited for computation could perform 10 to the 50th power operations per second. Mm-hmm. By comparison the human brain which is also kilogram size performs up to 10 to the 16th power operations per second and they say it may thus be possible for a single computer the mass of a human brain to simulate the real-time evolution of 1.4 times 10 to the 25th power virtual brains. The article is somewhat vague about what exactly an operation is, but I'll assume it's something like a bit flip or something very minute, which gets mm-hmm. huge as soon as you apply powers to it. So in our society, a significant number of computers are already simulating entire civilizations in games like Civilization 6, <laughs> Parts mm-hmm. of Iron 4, Humankind, and on. Mm-hmm. Obviously, these aren't full-fledged simulations mm-hmm. with real people in them but it might be reasonable to assume in a sufficiently advanced civilization that individuals will be able to run games that simulate societies like ours populated with sentient conscious beings. Like the Sims, right? Exactly. And I don't know about y'all, but I feel like as just your everyday casual gamer, that feels like a little bit too much responsibility and power. <laughs> yeah. But...
0: My Sims never turned out so well. Like I played a <laughs> lot and I can tell you that they didn't have the best lives. Like I was very... oh yeah. Wim- it doesn't,
2: like- <laughs> it doesn't mean the simulation wasn't working. Yeah, it makes me wonder
1: what like, our world version of being stuck in a swimming pool right, is. Right, right. Maybe it's the pandemic, <laughs> right. I don't know. So, the interesting question is, of all of the sentient beings in existence, what fraction are likely to be simulations? Hmm. So, to derive this answer, Bobo, Delisle, and Broussard start with the total number of real sentient beings and then multiply that by the fraction with access to necessary computing power, or f They multiply this by the fraction of that power that's devoted to simulating consciousness, F-dead, because these beings are actually likely to be using their computers for other purposes, too. I like that.
2: <laughs>
0: you know, they're shopping apps and whatnot.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then they multiply this by the number of brains they could actually simulate, which becomes the value r cow. So... The resulting equation looks like this. It's Fsim, the fraction of simulated brains, is equal to the fraction of sentient beings with access to the necessary computing power, or Fsiv, times the fraction of power devoted to simulating consciousness, Fdead, times the number of brains they could simulate, Rcal, over 1 plus the same. Read literally, that's Fsim is equal to Fsiv times Fdead times Rcal over 1 plus Fsiv times Fdead times Rcal. Uh, I'm sure y'all all all got that. Sure. So, yeah, Uh, but you can kind of see the basic math. They're essentially multiplying the capabilities of computing power with people who want to use that computing power and how many brains they could actually compute times Mm -hmm. the portion of the computing power used for that. Mm -hmm. The thing is that RCAL, which is the number of brains they could possibly simulate is a huge number it's 10 to the 25th power Ooh. and that weighs the entire formula in such a lopsided way that it pushes de delisle and broussard towards an inescapable conclusion it is mathematically inescapable from the colossal scale of RCAL, unless the number of people or the dedicated computing power is about zero Essentially, there's two possible outcomes from that. Either we live in a simulation or a vanishingly small proportion of advanced computing power is devoted to simulating brains. Ugh. All right, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: it's kind of like there is no God, or if there is, we're definitely made by God. Like that, like, it, I mean,
1: yeah. <laughs> Thanks, math. Yeah, which, you know, when you put it that way, it's not that unreasonable of a theosophical argument. However, it does say that it's not actually hard to imagine why the second option, where a small proportion of advanced computing powers devoted to simulating brains, might be true. So a society of beings similar to us, but with a much greater technological development, could indeed decide that it is not very ethical to simulate beings with enough precision to make them conscious while fooling them and keeping them cut off from the real world, they say. Mm -hmm. Another possibility is just that advanced civilizations never get to the stage where their technology is powerful enough to perform these kinds of computations. Perhaps they destroy themselves through war Mm -hmm. or disease or climate change long before (laughs) then. Uh, There's no way of knowing. And, of course, this this does not encounter the what if there's actually some intrinsic thing to human beings that cannot be simulated. But, you know, they're not really thinking about those topics. Right. Uh, (laughs) Set those aside. Yeah. (laughs) But supposing we are in a simulation... Bobo Delisle and Broussard ask whether we might escape while somehow hiding our intentions from our overlords. And they assume that the simulating technology will be quantum in nature, and if quantum phenomena are as difficult to compute on classical systems as we believe them to be, a simulation containing our world would have to be running on that quantum power which raises the possibility that it actually may be possible to detect our alien overlords since they cannot measure the quantum nature of our world without revealing their own presence.
2: I'm pretty sure I just saw that episode on my Voyager rewatch of Star Trek.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so quantum cryptography actually uses the same principle of which Broussard is actually one of the pioneers. It would make it possible for us to make encrypted plans that are hidden from the overlords, such as secretly transferring ourselves into our own simulations, which they really just went real far in the possibilities (laughs) here. I don't know why we would want to escape into a sub-simulation, but they also say that the overlords have a way to foil this as well. All they need to do is rewire their simulation to make it look as if we are able to hide information, even though they are aware of it all the time. And then they conclude with their tongues firmly in their cheeks. If the simulators are particularly angry at our escape, they could also send us to a simulated hell, in which case we would at least have the confirmation we were truly living inside a simulation and our paranoia was not unjustified.
2: Uh, Am I supposed to feel relief now? No, wait.
1: So the article ends by saying, in that sense, we are the ultimate laboratory guinea pigs, forever trapped and forever fooled by the evil genius of our omnipotent masters. And time for another game of Civ right. 6. <laughs> <Yay>. Next link. <laughs> Next, Next link. link.
0: Well, my article is about aliens. So, <laughs> hey! um, these are actually based off of some recently declassified military documents from 1975. It's from The Drive. It's called The Mysterious Cold War Case of Unidentified Aircraft Descending on Loring Air Force Base. So this was something that happened in October of 1975 over a series of four nights. Several aircraft or possibly one aircraft that could move extremely fast from spot to spot buzzed the tower, so to speak, at Loring Air Force Base in Maine, appearing and disappearing from the direction of Canada. Loring is the easternmost base of the United States, which means at the time, it was a secret nuclear base. It had a lot of armored weapons. And everyone who saw these crafts noted that the craft seemed to have a particular interest in the nuclear weapons stash, right? There were all these mm. B-52 bombers and KC-135 tankers, which, you know, makes it sound like, okay, it was just somebody spying. Like, I don't know why aliens would necessarily care about our nuclear mm-hmm. stash other than maybe we're going to end ourselves and they don't want us to do that. Who knows? But mm-hmm. all of these declassified documents have a shocking amount of eyewitnesses all kind of saying the same thing, which is what's kind of gotten the aliens are real people very, very excited about this. Mm. Uh, The first sighting, it was hovering at about 150 feet and it had this red and white light strobing on it. The Army National Guard helicopters were dispatched, but the craft disappeared. And then at the same time, another craft appeared about 10 to 13 miles northeast of the base and then disappeared again completely. And they said it could have landed, which would have made it uh, vanish from radar, or it could have just disappeared. They don't know. The next night, It appeared again over Loring, this time with no lights. And security police shift commander Arthur Beers was initially ordered to shoot it down. But then shortly after that, he got word that the president had been notified and the orders had changed. Now they should only try to shoot it down if it tries to land. So they were just sort of watching and seeing what it was doing for the next four nights. And it came back Mm -hmm. three times that night. It kept coming back over the series the next four days. Officially, it was described as a helicopter, but Michael Wallace, a former KC-135 tanker pilot, says that's what they were ordered to call it to the press. And that everybody who saw it described it as silent and luminous and that it moved in rapid straight line movements with straight vertical movements, turning without any apparent radius in the turn. Basically, everybody said nothing moves like that. We have no idea what this technology is. Yeah. And there were hundreds of people, hundreds of eyewitnesses saw these things. When Wallace later saw the pilot of the lead aircraft that was set up in the air to intercept the object, that pilot told Wallace, I can't talk about it. And you wouldn't believe me if I could talk about it. So, yeah, uh, it's
2: juicy. I mean,
0: it's a if nothing else, it's definitely a weird event from history that is sort of now being brought out into the open. There's a whole lot of other personal accounts at a website called LoringRemembers.com. It's L-O-R-I-N-G. They have another quote from a group of people, Sergeant Clifton Blakesley, Staff Sergeant William Long and Sergeant Danny Lewis. All three of them were together. Basically, as this thing was appearing and disappearing over the base, they got in a Jeep and started to chase it. And they drove into yeah. the secret you know, nuclear weapons area and they saw the craft in person hovering about five feet off the ground right at the weapon storage area. And the way they described it, the quote is... The object looked like all the colors were blending together as if you were looking at a desert scene. You see waves of heat rising off the desert floor. This is what I saw. The object was solid and we could not hear any noise coming from it. They said it was four car lengths long. It had no windows, no engines, no propellers. And then shortly after they all stood there seeing it, it disappeared again. On the other wow. hand, the three of them did not report that at the time because they had driven into a restricted area chasing it and they could have been arrested. Mm-hmm. But they all reported it later and they all had consistent stories. Others reported at the time that they got within 100 feet of where the radar said it was in the air, but they couldn't see anything. It just There was nothing there, but the radar said there was something there. Meanwhile, there were a whole bunch of sightings around the country at this same time. The Lewiston Daily Sun reported two civilian eyewitnesses that described a similar craft. They had more sightings over the next couple of months at Worthsmith Air Force Base, Malmstrom Air Force Base, Cannon Air Force Base, and Eglin Air Force Base, all over the place from Michigan to Florida and everywhere in between. And the article is obviously very fond of the alien theory, right? They sort of are are into that. But they note that Mm -hmm. it could have been domestic, right? It could have been just a foreign superpower and people got a little more excited. Right. But the idea of this foreign super tech during the Cold War, you would think that now, 50 years later, we would have seen something like that demonstrated. So they've been keeping it a secret for a really long time if it is mm-hmm. something that happened here. Or, you know, it might have all just been uh, swamp gas making people have hallucinations. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not not—I'm not going to weigh in one way or the other. But at the very least, there are a whole lot of people who all think they saw the same thing back in 1975. So... I It makes me happy to think that it could be true. Why not?
1: Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, if you even have a a passing interest in UFO sightings and look up reports, all those factors are like there 90% of the time. Mm -hmm. It's a weird shimmery thing. It can move and stop suddenly and it can go invisible. Mm -hmm. Like classic UFO sighting. So I'm very pleased with this report. (laughs)
0: Well, and it, it makes you question, like, if we're only now declassifying stuff from
2: 1975,
0: what do they have now that's not going to be declassified for another 50 years? I mean, right. you
2: know?
1: Ooh. Right. Yeah. Maybe
2: we need to get the mathematicians to update their simulation algorithms to account for things like aliens.
1: Although a simulation would also explain that. That's
0: right. They could be creating it within the simulation just to mess with us. So uh,
1: Maybe they are the overlords. That's right.
2: <laughs> Sleep well. That's... <laughs> Next link? Next Next link. link. All right. I'm going to quiz you guys right quick. Uh A flightless bird that is not an ostrich. What's the first one that comes to mind? A kiwi. Chicken. A chicken. Okay. (laughs) Think bigger flightless bird. Oh. uh, An an emu. There we go. That's the one I was looking after and mostly for the pronunciation. Uh How do you pronounce that word, way? Emu? You know, both of those apparently are considered correct, but- According to The Guardian, in this article by Matilda Bosley, NPR's absurd pronunciation starts new emu war in Australia. Wait, oh. There's been a debate <laughs> over the name of this flightless bird as U.S. Public Radio declares incorrect pronunciation official. Now. Let's go ahead and set the context here. The Guardian is a British publication, Uh right? And we're coming at this from sort of an Australia and US pronunciation kind of way. But the article kind of hilariously opens with a nod to the 1932 historic Emu Wars of Australia, where a small military brigade armed with two machine guns faced off against 20,000 Emus. (laughs) There's a link, but I didn't really care to learn more because that sounds just like an awful Texas feral hog from helicopters massacre
1: yeah and historically i think i should also point out that the australians lost the emu war (laughs)
2: good good for them i'm glad the emus
1: won yeah yeah it's very much worth a read it's very interesting and very entertaining
2: i may have to click on that link then it's in the article if you track it down from the curated link section on damn interesting but anyway there is a new emu war of 2020 it is a war of words and the first shot was fired by National Public Radio in the U.S. when it ruled on Friday that EMU was a correct and acceptable pronunciation of the name of Australia's national bird. I didn't realize it was an mm. Australia's national bird, but maybe that puts that historic EMU war into context there. What happened was someone tweeted out that after discussions with the editors and the NPR research archives and data team, the ruling is that emu is acceptable. Now, the OED pronunciation favors emu. Okay. We have a little bit of a Y sound in there. And there was a very swift backlash of mostly Australians with comments labeling the decision absurd <laughs> and a travesty. But a lot of Twitter commentators incorrectly assumed that the word emu stemmed from indigenous Australian languages. But a professor of linguistics at the University of Sydney said this is likely not the case. They're not 100% sure, but it's assumed it came originally from Portuguese. And that's because the Portuguese word Ima, E-M-A, was originally used to refer to a cassowary and may have been based on an Arabic word meaning big bird. Makes sense. (laughs) And this is, as they note, pretty typical of English, which is absolutely chock full of words that are borrowed from languages from all over the world. Right. So both the Aussies and the Yanks are guilty of brutalizing the bird's name to suit their lazy Anglo accents, as the Guardian likes to editorialize. Uh. <laughs> but Kate Burridge, a professor of linguists at Monash University in Victoria, said the progression from emu to emu is part of a larger trend. Another example of this is the word nude. Pronounced in decades past as nude, oh. most Australians and Americans now say nude. And I do recall hearing some people say nude, and I thought it was just like a cute little affectation. Like a sneering, but yeah. Exactly. Like, it was more sort of a disdain as opposed to a pronunciation thing to inject it with a little bit of a tone, mm-hmm. right? But American English speakers drop the sound much more than English speakers from England or Australia. So it's a sound that's starting to get lost to history. This article notes that even the name Susan used to be pronounced Susan. All right. Whoa. Okay. But some of these have survived. So the word mute has that mm. little Y in there. We could call it moot. But that's a different that's word. that's another word. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I mean, I'm thinking about the phrase, you know, cue ball. Cue ball would just not feel the yeah. same at all. So I can, I guess I can get the outrage a little bit. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, and I can hear like the word duty, you know, a British person would say duty. You
2: know, there's a Y
0: in
1: there. Oh, yes,
2: yes. Mm-hmm. And and also, you're also noting the T versus the D sound. Americans really like to make do-D. <laughs> I'm
1: sorry. That, that's came out
2: completely wrong. <laughs> but but in things like, you know, the T sound in do T or do D, right. <laughs> Americans do often translate that as a D as opposed to a hard T. And, you know, this linguist also wants to point out that the nature of language is inherently democratic, right? Right. It's like the public essentially uses language in a way that becomes a giant authority. So even if people who are historians and linguists say like, this is correct, if this is what people are saying, it becomes the correct. It's the new right? correct. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: So Australia's mad, and Britain has officially said that both are acceptable. But it feels like most Americans are like, we don't care what is or isn't acceptable or who isn't mad. We're all just going to say emu, right? Does anybody say (laughs) emu in
2: America? (laughs) Probably. We might want to do some informal polls. Yeah. You might want to check the (laughs) trending hashtag on Twitter. I'm sure a lot of people are volunteering their thoughts on the matter. But I don't know. I kind of like calling it an emu. That gives it a little bit of a kitty cat sound, which I'm quite fond of.
1: It makes me think of internet cats.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to imagine, like, if I had 20,000 of them facing me down in an emu war? Would I be more scared by emus or emus? I think emus <laughs> emus sounds scarier. I think uh-huh, if they're going to be yeah. if they're going to be attacking in herds, they're
2: emus. There's well, something
1: sinister about that yeah. y sound there. Yeah,
2: yeah. Maybe that alone will keep it in in good circulation, even here in the bastardized <laughs> yank world of America. <laughs> <laughs> Next link.
1: Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from NPR, and it is titled, Water, Water Everywhere, and now scientists know where it came from. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) So this is specifically about water on Earth, Mm -hmm. and obviously it's omnipresent and essential for life, but scientists still remain a bit baffled about where all of it came from. Was it present when the planet formed, or did the planet form dry and only later get its water from impacts with water-rich objects such as comets? Hmm. So... A new study in the journal Science suggests that the Earth likely got a lot of its precious water from the original materials that built the planet instead of having water arrive later from afar. The researchers who did this study went looking for signs of water in a rare kind of meteorite, and only about 2% of meteorites found on Earth are these so-called instatite chondrite meteorites. Their chemical makeup suggests that they're close to the kind of primordial stuff that glommed together and produced our planet 4.5 billion years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's actually kind of wild to think that there's even 2% at all. That seems like quite a large number for how far that was. Yeah. And you wouldn't even necessarily know how special they are at first glance. So, Lauret Piani, who's a researcher in France at the Centre de Recherches Petrographiques at Geochimix, I cannot pronounce that properly, <laughs> but a French researcher says <laughs> that it is essentially a bit like a gray rock. And what she wanted to know about these rocks is how much hydrogen was in there, because that's what could actually produce the water. So, compared with planets such as Jupiter and Saturn, the Earth formed really close to the Sun... And scientists have long thought that temperatures must have been hot enough to prevent any water from being in the form of ice. It was all just liquid water. Mm -hmm. And that also means that there would be no ice to join with the swirling bits of rock and dust that were smashing into each other and slowly building up the young earth. So if all that is true, that what that means is that our home planet must have been watered later on, perhaps when it got hit by icy comets or meteorites with water-rich minerals coming from farther out in the solar system, or, you know, aliens with watering hoses. I don't know. <laughs> that is not in the article. It's right. <laughs> just a throwback. <laughs> Even though that's been the prevailing view, that water came later in the form of, you know, bits of dust and rock and comets, Mm -hmm. uh, some planetary scientists don't actually buy it. After all, the story of Earth's water would be a lot more simple and just straightforward if the water was just there to begin with. So, Piani and her colleagues recently took a close look at 13 of these unusual meteorites, which are also thought to have formed close to the sun. Piani says before the study, there were almost no measurement of the hydrogen or water in this meteorite, and those measurements that did exist were inconsistent and were done on meteorites that could have undergone changes after falling to the Earth's surface. Hmm. So they deliberately selected the most pristine meteorites possible that would not be altered and modified by the Earth's processes, and then they analyzed the meteorite's chemical makeup just to see how much hydrogen was there. And since hydrogen can react with oxygen to produce water, knowing how much hydrogen is in the rocks indicates how much water this material could have contributed to a growing Earth. What they found was actually much less hydrogen than in ordinary meteorites. But it would still be enough to explain plenty of Earth's water, at least several times the amount of water in the Earth's present-day oceans. And Piani says it's actually a very big quantity of water in the initial material, and that was never really considered as a possibility before. So it sounds like even though there's less hydrogen than in ordinary meteorites, there was enough hydrogen in these kind of, you know, really old legacy special meteorites that it could have supplied a lot of the Earth's water. Well, if the
0: idea is that we were made up of these dry rocks that contained a bunch of hydrogen, and then the hydrogen was sort of released and joined with oxygen to make water later on, Doesn't that mean that like other planets could theoretically be made to make water if we could sort of somehow figure out that process. Ooh.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's part of the idea and definitely in the far-flung imaginary sci-fi future of terraforming, that's exactly what you would have mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. So uh, I say, yeah, why not?
0: Let's assume it's true. <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Taking a lot of liberties with this right, article right. today. Uh, <laughs> so what's more, the team also measured the deuterium to hydrogen ratio in the meteorites and found that it's similar to what's known to exist in the interior of of the earth which also contains a lot of water this is additional evidence that there's a link between our planet's water and the basic building materials that were present when it formed so these findings pleased Anne peslier who's a planetary scientist at nasa's johnson space center in houston and she says i was happy because it makes it nice and simple we don't have to invoke complicated models where we have to bring material water-rich material from the outer part of the solar mm-hmm. system and she says that the delivery of so much water from way out there would have required something unusual to disturb the orbits of this water rich material, such as Jupiter just having a little trip inside the inner solar system. And she says that in this scenario, we just don't need Jupiter, we don't need to do anything weird, we just grab the material that was there, where the Earth formed, and that's where the water comes from. Despite these convincing results, she says that there's still plenty of watery mysteries to plumb. For example, researchers are still trying to determine exactly how much water is locked deep inside the Earth, but it's surely substantial. She ends the article saying there's more water down beneath our feet than there is that you see at the surface. Wow. And that's intense. Yeah, that's a lot yeah. of water. Yeah. I mean, it's hopeful. That's that's good
0: (laughs) because we're kind of ruining the supply we have now. So if we could get more, that would be
1: nice. Now it's making me imagine: like, is that water? If you somehow release that to the surface, would it flood everything, or would the dynamics just make it sit there and be under the water? I don't know. Maybe Uh, twenty twenty will
2: have an answer for us before years. That's
1: yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Bring it on, twenty (laughs) twenty. No, please, please do not bring it on. Next link. Next Next link.
0: link. All right. Well, this one is uh, also a little environmental, a little bit frustrating. It's called They Know How to Prevent Megafires. Why Won't Anybody Listen? Yeah, it's a very good question. Yes, it is. And there's a, quite a lot of frustrating stuff in this article. It's basically, obviously, California has been having their annual wildfires. And the mm-hmm. fact is that California has what forest management professionals call a fuel imbalance, which is that the forests are supposed to burn. Like, ecologically, mm-hmm. we know that. But we have prevented them from burning as much as they were supposed to for over 100 years now. And so just more and more dense forests are building up. And they say that's what these wildfires are is they're trying to correct that fact Because these forests are not supposed to be that dense. They will burn if they're that dense. Mm -hmm. And And that's the thing is there. All of these forest management professionals are saying, we know this. We know prescribed burns have to happen. There are other parts of the country where they do them and they do not have these wildfire problems. So what is going on? Right. Why is nobody listening? And the conclusion is the kind of overarching reason is culture. In 1905, the U.S. Forest Service was founded with this military mindset, you know, man over nature. We can dominate anything. And shortly after that, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake hit and actually more people were killed by the subsequent fires than the quake itself. And so that sort of set Mm. the government and the people out in California in this, you know, we will not let this happen again. We have to stop all fires immediately. We can't let them spread. And then it goes into details of like, okay, yeah, that explains 1906. But why today? We're a little smarter now. And they said the modern reason is, unfortunately, money. Fire suppression is big business, which is weird, but it is. The state's mm-hmm. emergency fire response team, which is called CAL FIRE, has been outsourcing their contracts for about the last 20 years to private businesses. And up until 1999, they had never spent more than $100 million in a year. And in the 2017-2018 fire season, they spent $773 million, And this year is expected oh. to be the first $1 billion year. And it's easy to say money. There's some smaller parts to that that kind of add up. So 25% of the money goes to aviation, which are like these cool planes like the Lockheed Martin Fire Herc, which is a very specific plane meant only for fire suppression. It can drop up to 20,000 gallons of fire retardant in one flight. But 70% of the retardant that they deliver is dropped more than 2,000 yards from homes. Meaning those homes weren't in danger. That fire should have been allowed to spread in a controlled way, but they Mm -hmm. should not have put it out. But, of course, Mm -hmm. the owner of the plane wants to sell the services of the plane. So he's like, I can get it out right now. And everyone's like, put out the fire. That sounds like a good idea. And so they give them millions of dollars. They go put out the fire. Uh, And it just is a cycle mm -hmm. that keeps continuing. A lot more money goes to private ground crews. They're not really private, but the professional ground crews are sort of divided between free labor from the prisons, which has been a very prominent subject in recent times. And then the professional crews who are actually hired, they get relatively too much compared to the prisoners who get extremely little. The professional fire crews get catering and the median salary of a firefighter in California is one hundred and forty eight thousand dollars a year. Assistant professor of fire science at the University of California says every five to 10 years, we see an event where a firefighter who wants overtime starts a fire. Right. If you're paying your firefighters oh this much money, it becomes a financial incentive to start a fire.
2: hmm. Yeah.
0: So by comparison, in California, at least prescribed fires are cumbersome and unprofitable. They said a wildfire is categorized as an emergency, meaning firefighters pull down hazard pay and can drive a bulldozer into protected wilderness areas where regulations typically prohibit even mountain bikes. Planned burns are human made events. Mm -hmm. And as such, they have to follow all the environmental compliance rules. For example, the Mm -hmm. Clean Air Act out in California restricts the fine particulate matter that you put into the air, meaning one contractor says we've spent thousands and thousands of dollars to get all geared up to do a prescribed burn. And then they get shut down because it's smoggy that day. And if they do the fire, it's going to go over the limit. Or the county that they're nearby gets word that the burn is happening and they say, we don't want a bunch of smoke in our neighborhood. You can't do it. They protest it. They shut it down. uh, But, of course, Matthew Herto, associate professor of biology at the University of New Mexico, points out air quality impacts from prescribed burning are minuscule compared to what they're experiencing right now. Right. If you don't do the small burn, you are going to get the big burn. They said another problem that they noted was liability. The southeastern U.S. has as much forest as the California coast, but they burn more than twice as much each year. The burn masters in these other states are protected to some degree if wind takes a prescribed fire out of control. Meanwhile, there's punishments for missed deadlines or milestones that they missed for the number of acres that they burn. In California, it's the opposite. There's a big punishment if your prescribed fire goes awry, but there's none if you just cancel Mm. it. And overall, basically, everybody quoted in this article is really, really bummed out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The fires are only going to get worse. I mean, we've created this massive tinderbox and we would need to burn so much that it's not possible for us to burn it without a catastrophic burn equivalent to what nature's already doing to us. They say California is currently burning about 20,000 acres a year. The most hopeful legislation that they're trying to get passed would get them up to 40,000 acres a year. But in fact, according to forest management experts, they should be burning about a million acres a year. So, I mean, they're all just like, look, yeah, legislation's good, but it's not going to get us anywhere close to where we need to be. The other thing they keep saying is that, well, the firefighters are in emergency mode right now, so we can't do it now. We'll do it later. They keep saying that they're going to increase the prescribed burns during what's called the shoulder season or sort of the edges of the fire season where the firefighters aren't occupied. But in fact, the fire season is getting longer every year. These wildfires that are going on right now, we're not technically in California's wildfire season yet. Oh, no. So mm-hmm. basically, California is going to burn, and one way or another, and uh, they don't—they oh. don't really have a good solution for it. Oh,
1: California! Oh, incentive psychology. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Next link
1: next Next link
2: link. all right this quickie comes from the bbc it's about a japanese village that cooks in a hot spring so hey some nature is really good you guys (laughs) so like boiling like uh, uh, what yeah like are (laughs) you in there yeah so basically there's a rural village in wakayama and it has japan's only unesco inscribed hot spring so it's considered a heritage site and this is where Hmm. locals have been cooking their food for centuries it's a really interesting mix. So there's over 3000 natural onsen or natural hot springs throughout Japan. Yunomine is the name of this one. It was discovered roughly 1800 years ago. It's said to be the oldest. It's part of a sacred UNESCO inscribed Kumano Kodo pilgrimage route that passes through the town. And for centuries, you know, pilgrims have been coming here to cleanse themselves. This is just a simple, rustic, one room cabin set atop the river. But because it's the world's only hot spring bath located in a World Heritage site, this village has had a lot more tourism over the years. Locals have been cooking with the springs 90 degrees Celsius, which is definitely hot, American yes. here, <laughs> since at least the Edo period. And they've got records dating back this much. There's only one street in this entire village. It has 26 households and a total of 50 residents who live there Wow. long. I mean, it's a wow. tiny town. And five years ago, few foreign visitors came here. But word has spread, and now there are 14 guest houses and ryokans, which are traditional Japanese-style inns to accommodate the growing number of tourists and in 2018 there were over 35,000 and they come from all over Whoa. the world to bathe in the medicinal waters and even back to the Edo period when this onsen was kind of getting discovered, they even welcomed members of the imperial family. So this is kind of a best kept secret and the secret is out. But this article kind of looks at the food itself and how the locals who cook them in the steaming hot water. So a lot of them have this water piped into their homes, but they still have this one location that people will bring their bamboo shoots to when it's bamboo shoot season because apparently cooking in onsen water takes the bitterness out of a lot of vegetables and other things, hmm. even Even with this high degree of sulfur and iron. So it's got a lot of mineral content, which is why, you know, people bathe in it for health properties. And the person who wrote this article noted that the broccoli that had been cooked in there had no hint of the strong sulfuric smell, usually associated with hot spring water. They also do local favorites like tofu and poached eggs and things like that. So, okay, I'm
0: I'm imagining I'm really hoping that they have separated the part where the people soak in it for the spa and the part that goes in the food. Because otherwise like you're just making human soup
2: at that point. Like I mean Yes. I, yes. I just uh, <laughs> yeah, there's sense. definitely dedicated spaces to bathing and dedicated spaces to cooking, but I'm guessing that the irrigation and drainage systems eventually just kind of recirculate it back because yeah. the nature and You know, if it's working for them, fine. Maybe if we have too many tourists, that could kind of funk things up. Mm -hmm. But it's been working for them for a long time. I mean, I
0: guess it's true. Like, all the water that you drink, you know, from the lakes or streams or whatever, the fish are
2: pooping in that. Like you're drinking stuff that that's other living right. creatures right. are
0: in. So, you know, maybe humans. It goes back make into the, the ground water better. It goes
2: back underground. I'm sure that because the high temperatures that they're getting rid of any like super nasty mm-hmm. whatever's and the fact that you've got all this mineral content is obviously adding its own flavor to the water, but it seems to be working for this town, and I look forward to the day when it's safe for me to find out for myself. Well, and if it makes people eat more vegetables, I mean that's a good thing, right? <laughs> Always a win. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's a huge problem in Japan, but you right. know, fair point. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash damn There are, of course, a lot of articles that we did not get to today. Some of those articles include what bread tasted like 4000 years ago, the real life origin story behind the Count of Monte Cristo and how a one million dollar plot to hack Tesla failed. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. We hope that you'll join us next week. We're looking forward to it. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Waisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.